Welcome to Candid Conversations with Candace and Siobhan. We are dynamic women with different backgrounds, life experiences, and personal struggles. Yet the more we got to know each other, the more we realized that our similarities far outweighed our differences. Our goal is to bridge the gap between us and them. We are more alike than we are different. We are your go-to podcast for all things real, raw, and resilient. Each week, we have unscripted conversations with remarkable individuals who have truly decided to show up authentically in their own lives and are now inspiring others to do the same. Take a moment to listen, and not only will you see yourself in these stories, you'll leave with a takeaway from our guests and a reminder of the power of vulnerability and connection. Hello and welcome to another Candid Conversation with Candace and Siobhan. Today we are joined by anti-racism educator, anti-oppression coach, and social justice advocate, Salam Debs. At the end of our talk, she reminds us that black and brown people are the global majority. And she warns us not to be left behind. It's white supremacy that steals humanity from all people, all of us, black, brown, white, and everything in between. We need to heal from the past so that we can move forward together into the future. As a mother though, Salam reminds us that our children learn from us in so many ways. We are human first and foremost. It's our wounds, our trauma, and most importantly, our healing that make us who we are. And so our gift to the generations that follow is to keep on healing and become more of who we were meant to be. Welcome to another Candid Conversation with Chaos Calm, Candice and Siobhan. I am Siobhan. You have the lovely Candice sitting beside me here. And today we are so fortunate to be joined by Salam Debs. I am going to make sure I get all the titles here because you have so many accolades to acknowledge right now. You are an anti-racism educator, anti-oppression coach, social justice advocate. You are the founder of Juicy Yoga, meditation and yoga instructor, Lululemon ambassador. You are a mom of a 15-year-old and you've got a host of other titles that I didn't even want to write down. So we're going to talk about all the things. So welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much, both of you, for having me. I just want to quickly just say um, that, you know, I acknowledge that we live and work on the traditional territory of the neutral Anishinaabeg and Haudenosaunee peoples, and that we're situated on, on the Haldeman Tract, the land promise of Six Nations. Thank, Thank you. you so much for doing that land acknowledgement. Yes. Yeah. Well, as we get into a conversation, I mean, you have quite an incredible story, but you also have a really big course that's coming up in March. So if you are comfortable starting there, we can jump right into that conversation. Yes, of course. So the anti-racism course, um, I actually started it last January, and we had a small cohort that began then virtually before our world became virtual. Mm-hmm. And um, I then kind of re re-establish and recreate and redesign the course through COVID-19, through the pandemic. And um, now it's actual uh, like video course modules that people can move through. So we just finished a mod, we finished one cohort um, and they just finished uh, about a week ago. And now we're moving into the next cohort, which is going to be starting in March. And it basically is a six module course um, and it's self-led online videos. So basically videos where they watch me for hours and hours and hours talking about different subjects. So basically module one is Canadian colonial history. And then uh, number two, module two is where we talk about whiteness and white privilege. 
Module three, we talk about systemic um, implicit bias. Module four is is systemic racism, and then we move into allyship and then anti-racism. So basically, it's a journey that we we move through over twelve weeks, and each individual um, signs up for the course on their own, or organizations or businesses can sign up as a group. And we move through this process and we have coaching sessions, um, about four coaching sessions over the 12 weeks where we kind of dive in and we talk and have conversation about the learning that we're moving through, as well as there's workbooks through each module where they, each person goes through a personal journey of reflection and journaling and answering questions. So yeah, this is, this is the anti-racism course. Wow. What a yeah, I mean, I, I cannot think of a better time for somebody to be advocating and, and bringing voice and in the role here. I'm wondering, even within the course, so you've, you've now done this course both in person and you've moved into the online space. What's some of the personal learnings that you've had through facilitating as well as the experience of taking people on this journey? Well, actually, the course has always been virtual. So when I first started it uh, in last January, I, I offered it virtually then and I never had any experience with Zoom and now Zoom is like our daily life. And I learned that there and I remember it was a really big challenge. It was a big learning curve to move through a process online, um, but it was an incredible group. It was like 25 people and we moved through this process of um, like breakout rooms and, you know, learning together. And then obviously during, you know, the pandemic through COVID, everything stopped, life stopped, Juicy Yoga stopped for a while, the studio stopped. And so I, you know, not that I had time time because I was still busy, but I felt like I felt um, really compelled to get back into redesigning the course. And this virtual platform has actually worked because it's allowed for people from everywhere, all over yes. Canada to be a part of these conversations. And my cousin, um, you know, she helps me facilitate um, the sessions, the coaching sessions and, you know, it's been really powerful to have my son there because usually I'm running around like a crazy person all year, but have him home while I'm doing work. And I know that 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 ability to feel a sense of still being home with him has been really great. I yeah, I again, we we've, we've talked about there's so much and I know that you ladies have had a conversation prior to us getting online about the importance of this conversation and and your own experiences is growing up in this country. I I did look at your um website and I loved this. You you had said um I mean, you've spoken out about so much of what you internalized growing up and your experiences coming to Canada. And I'm wondering, I mean, I know that all this sort of jumps into maybe where your learning is now, but I'm wondering how have you taken a lot of this struggle and turned it into your strength and how that shows up for you as, as the work you're, you're passionate about today? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I mean, I've been here since I was two years old. So I've been in Canada my whole life, but being an Ethiopian, an Ethiopian, um, you know, Canadian, so to speak, mm -hmm. And the experience of growing up with, you know, um, immigrant parents, which, you know, that's a term that I, I try less and less to use because really we're all immigrants on this, on, on you know, Turtle Island. However, um, yeah, of course, the experiences of being raised by a single mother in the most disinvested communities in Scarborough and Regent Park, then coming to Kitchener-Waterloo, my mom brought us here to try to create a better life for us in Waterloo. And um, yes, maybe we weren't in, um, you know, in areas that were 
as low income as they were in where we were in Toronto. But then I experienced like overtly racist experiences moving into this community and being here since high school. And so I think my identity as a as a black woman, you know, that intersection has always been at play, whether it be in terms of class, in terms of um, you know, social economic status to you know anti-black racism that's really intense um growing up here in, in this community and then also the systemic barriers of not having access to a lot of you know um the resources that i think a lot of my white friends had you know growing up and so yeah i think i'm constantly healing from that um and then constantly trying to ensure that my son moves differently in the world so that's so I think my course, my teaching really comes from a lived experience. Yes, there's a lot of academic aspects and critical critical thinking, um, but it really does come from the lived experience of basically kind of check, checking off the box on all of the ways in which systemic racism and anti-Black racism impacts someone that lives, um, you know, on this stolen land. I'm just wondering about um, there's so many things um, we've had some conversations with other black women and all of our experiences are different. So, um, and I think 1 of the difficulties is, is that and, and actually, Siobhan and I, we just recorded our intro for our podcast. We talked about, despite our differences, we're more similar than we are, you know, different. Um, the thing is, though, I found as a black woman that people tend to stereotype, to generalize and to clump all black people together. And yet, you know, I'm here in Windsor, Ontario, border city to Detroit, Michigan, huge difference between black Americans in Michigan, as opposed to black Canadians in Windsor, as opposed to black Canadians in Toronto and Kitchener and all the other areas. Plus, you talked about immigrant parents. The thing is, is my mother is an immigrant, but from Holland. Mm -hmm. My father was first generation Canadian, um, his father from Barbados, his mother from Wales. And I think that um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is identity. You mm. talked about your son having a different lived experience. Um, despite you being a, an Ethiopian Canadian, you are not. Um, well, you are still 1st generation in the, in the country. Your son is 1st generation born in Canada. Right? Um, but this whole idea of identity as a black person, a black woman, can you discuss a little bit about that about identification, this labeling? Yeah, I think it's complex. My mom coming to coming to Canada from Ethiopia. In Ethiopia, it's very different because, for example, in Ethiopia, there's like over 80 languages. Like we're from Tigray, um, the northern part of Ethiopia, but you know they don't have the same context in terms of calling themselves black or you know there isn't right. that that languaging. So when when we growing up, I always tell this funny story about how when majority of my friends and the neighborhoods that we lived in, I mean there was Ethiopian, there's Somali, there's Caribbeans, but when I would hang out with um, like my Caribbean friends, and this is obviously rooted in anti-black racism. She would say, why do you want to hang out with black people? And I was like, mom, we're black. She was like, no, we're not black, we're Ethiopian. And I was like, okay, it was so, com it was complex. It was, it was really confusing, especially even Caribbean, um, you know, friends saw me not as really black. And then we had Af as Africans, as Ethiopians, had a stereotype against Caribbean people, all rooted in anti-Black racism. Yes. I mean, there's there's two conversations. One is the macro conversation, which is there is a shared experience of of Blackness of Black people. Mm -hmm. um, Tana has Tana Coates talks about this in Between the World and Me, where he says, you know, we are a, a we are a people born out of um, you know an experience, a shared experience historically and throughout the world. Yes. Um, 
However, we're also we also have very complex experiences in relationship to our cultures, to where we grew up, to, you know, depending if you grew up in Toronto or you grew up in Waterloo or Windsor, if you're Ethiopian, if you're Somali, if you're Muslim, if you're Christian, if you're Pentecostal, if you're, you know, I mean, it's it's just it's so complex. If you're from um, Jamaica, you're from Trinidad, that's different. I mean, it's complex. So I think both conversations are necessary. Unfortunately, because we live in a society that has built the construct of race in which we are judged by um, by this construct of, of, of blackness and seen as inferior, we have to tackle the experience of blackness. We also have pride in that shared experience and we have pride in our and our very um, personal experience and identity of being a black person. Like my son is very different than me. Me growing up and him, I'm like, wow, he's so gentle. <laughs> he's so, like I was really, I mean, I think I'm more relaxed over the years, but I was, I, I, I had to really learn how to survive in the world. And I had that really kind of maybe tough exterior in many cases to, to move through things. And he, you know, he's got, I had to take the subway every day. I didn't have anyone to drive me anywhere. This kid's been like chauffeured everywhere since <laughs> the day he was born so you know he has a very different experience his black identity is different but yes. we want that i want his progression to look different than mine that he can have more liberation in his experience more freedom to be who he is i have one other question then um considering uh through COVID, the black lives matter um you know rising up again um due to the number of tragedies um, that are not brand new. They've been going on since the beginning, but um, it seems like just a revolution, um, a shift is occurring. And I'm wondering um, what you feel the impact of, you know, this occurring through this last summer um, and where we might be going with this Black Lives Matter or just an awareness and conversation, white allyship. Um, what do you have to say about that? Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, exactly what you just said, Candace, which is that this has been happening for centuries. Um, you know, anti-Black racism is a, is, is a fabric of Canadian history. The enslavement of Black people for two centuries in Canada, Indigenous, cult, you know, cultural genocide of Indigenous peoples. That is Canada's history. That's yes. North America's history. But, you know, what has changed is that um, I would say what's changed is Black people, well, Black and Indigenous people have always been fighting for for, for equity. What's changed is that there's a critical mass consciousness and awakening that's happened for allies, for white folks. Um, but we've been having these conversations forever from day one. Yeah. So I think the critical mass of awareness and in white folks and allies and, and, and people saying like, wow, you know, I, I want to be a part of this change. I no longer want to perpetuate or maintain the status quo is, is what has changed. Um, you know, the Black Lives Matter march we had here in Waterloo, I thought like, okay, 30 people will show up. Perfect. That's good because it was just grief and sadness that all I was feeling is wanting to take action. But over 36,000 people showed up on the streets during COVID when we had never been outside. Yeah, yeah. You know, to me, that said something. Now, how do we move from performative allyship to long term every single day for the rest of your life to change our communities? Well, I think it requires structural change. It, it means that your family, like it's not just about the the idea of equity. It's about like, who cares if you read a book on, you know, anti-racism yeah. if you're not changing your life? Yeah. If you're not changing the way that you move in the world, if you're not talking about it at the board meetings, in your workspaces, 
if you're not shifting and ensuring and recognizing that a community where black and brown people are not um, part of the conversation and don't have representation is not a rich community. It's 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 you know it's it's devoid of humanity really. And so I think where we're heading is actually starting to talk not just about black and indigenous liberation, but we're starting to talk about things like white supremacy, and that's that's necessary to break down those structures because black and indigenous people will fight forever. But if white people are not willing to look at their own uh, ways in which they are complicit and maintaining the status quo, well, you know, things won't change. It is so powerful. Um, when you mentioned about the march in, in the Kitchener-Waterloo area, I also attended a march here in Windsor, Ontario. And um, uh, with a white friend, my children, and met up with tons of other people, <laughs> you know, socially distanced with their masks on. But I remember standing there by my son, who I, I also have a 15-year-old son, and um, bawled my head off. I didn't know that was going to happen. I leaned into him. He put his arm around me, and I was sobbing. And I did not, I could not stop it. My friend looked at me so concerned. Other people were looking at me, and I was just sobbing because I was so proud of him. So he towers over me. I am five five and a half, and he's six one. And although I think he's grown probably two inches since that march was, um, but uh, I wonder. You did mention how your son's experience is different. However, they are still young black males. And I'm mm -hmm. wondering as a mother, how do you feel as you talk about your flesh and blood that is a part of you walking this earth and his own life experiences and the challenges he will face, no doubt, at some point in his life? Oh, Candace, you're trying to make me cry. Sorry, girl. <laughs> I hear you. I, I sobbed that day too at the march. I think um yeah, I think, you know, what you stated is true. It's like we have these 15-year-old boys. Um, I think for a long time, I think we've tried our best to navigate society in a way in which we we think, like, if they just do all of these things right, like, you know, they'll be okay. But the reality is they're Black. They're getting bigger. They're getting taller. Yeah. And society, you know, t we know statistically, we know viscerally in our bodies that they start to see them as threats, as aggressive and less childlike. Like black boys are not afforded the ability to be children. And so because of that, I find that I have to equip him. Like I want him to be free. Like he loves science and he loves music and he loves, he's artistic and he's, you know, he's a kid. But also, I, I feel like I have to continuously equip him with that knowledge and that awareness to say, like, you don't have the luxury or the privilege to move in the world, like, obliviously. You have to be conscious. You have to be conscious about your movements. You have to be aware of how you're moving when you're hanging out with friends one day when that happens yeah. after COVID. Yeah. And that autonomy is, is something you wish for your children to have that autonomy, but also it's a, it's a fear for us as black mothers. What does that autonomy look like when he starts moving in the world on his own? Yes. When you can't protect him. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. How does that, how does that feel to have to have that conversation? Because again, I, this, you know, as somebody who's not had to deal with any of this, because I just happened to be born as a white female, how does it feel to have to sit down with your child and say, listen, I want you to be the best version of yourself. I want you to be who you're meant to be in this world and explore everything. But I need you to have this back of mind awareness that it's not always going to be fair. And you like how like I don't have kids, but like my heart breaks being like you have to tell your child that like just a heads up. This is going to suck sometimes and keep that in the back of your mind. I mean, it's devastating, which is why, you know, we need to end anti-black racism and eradicate it in our communities because the burden on us as mothers 
and as caregivers, as parents, um, is is tremendous. You know, there's studies that show that the trauma, the trauma is intergenerational. You know, the trauma is like where it's being passed down again and again, regardless of the environment that he lives in. And so, we we are on a healing journey for ourselves in you know black communities in indigenous communities like this. The need to to find ways where we can find release and support and like therapy and like access mental health supports because it is um, challenging. When you hear actually the stories of what happens to black youth in the education system, and of course we know what happens in the, you wouldn't believe it. Like, I mean, I believe it because I, I just see it, I hear it, I've seen it with my son. I'm sure you've seen it with your, your children, Candace. And it's like, it's devastating. It takes away from their ability to actually be able to be fully themselves in the world. And like, because of there's always that psychic energy, you don't, you don't, it's like harder for you to strive for specific things because you're always, you're always having to navigate that, that part of your identity that where, where society is, you know, seeing you as inferior. So I would say it's why every single person, I don't, regardless of what race you are, and especially white folks who have the privilege to do so need to be advocating, need to be advocating for our education systems, need to be advocating for looking at, you know, what it looks like to defund the police in terms of reallocating funds to support actually culturally competent programs that support our communities, to stop surveilling our communities, to understand that unconscious bias training is not going to work because that is deep, just like, just like Black and Indigenous people have inherited the deep trauma of hundreds of years, white folks have inherited a deep bias for hundreds of years and a benefit from that. And we can't erase that. We have to have those difficult conversations if we want to tackle anti-Black racism. When you talk about that um, generational trauma, that residual effect and how it also affects white people, I think that's probably in part why when these conversations are had, it's difficult for many white people to hear because they have to face what is kind of uncomfortable. Um, I remember asking my mother, because um, the Afrikaners in South Africa were horrible. I'm like, oh my God, mom, were we slave owners? She's like, no, don't worry about it. we were poor pig farmers. I can't imagine the balance of, you know, being a very white woman, blonde, blue eyed, raising black children as a single mother. Um, I think she did a pretty damn good job of it. But me as a mother, when you were talking about the mother's burden, and I'm going to say that, uh, black mother's burden, every mother has a burden because the, the feelings that they feel for their child, I'm sure are just different from their father's because we, we hold that child within us, right? And then we, we let it, that child out. Um, but you had, as I was listening to you talk to, I don't know. I don't know if I know another black woman that's a close friend that has a black son. So when you were talking, I'm sitting here so uncomfortable because I remember having my son having issues at school. And let me tell you, it was the first time um, my, my, so this is when my husband and I were together. We went to the school to talk to the principal. Um, I felt very empowered that we were both in unity, even though we're no longer together. I know that he stands by his children and that I could count on him to be there as a stand up father. But we went in there as a team and we're both mm -hmm. educated people listening and speaking eloquently. And then after it, I went to go to yoga and um, he took Marcus back home and had a conversation with him about Marcus being a black boy. I had no clue about this. When I got home, I had a conversation with my son about being a black boy. Mm -hmm. On this day was the first time we had to talk to our child 
about the fact that some people see him as black first. And the fact that both my husband, and I had this conversation with our child and we did not know that each mm. person was going up, that that was this moment that we both knew we must talk to our child. And so as you were talking that, that came up for me, the mm. pain that Siobhan, you have the first time with, oh, sorry, I'll be quiet. This is what happens. No, when, go Maya, when my little girl was three um, and she came home and she's like, mom, am I dirty? I said, no, what are you talking about? And I had no clue. And she's like, because a girl at school told me I'm so dirty, my skin is brown. And that was the first time. Uh, that was the first time, because Marcus would only have been four and a half, five. Um, and is, so I had never, that was the first time. I will never forget that moment when I had to look at my child. And this is what people do not understand. It's like, these conversations should never have to be had. Now, mind you, other people, your child wears glasses, your child is physically disabled, your child suffers from dyslexia or whatever. You have to have conversation with your children that are painful as well, right? Mm -hmm. So parents have conversations that are difficult with their children when their children are different. The this thing is, mm -hmm. I think that this is just what we need to do is love one another. This is why we're having candid conversations with a diverse group of people, because what we see is the fact that we, you know, I'm looking at you, Salam. Ethiopian Canadian female. I'm a biracial Canadian female. Siobhan is Irish Canadian. And yet we are women first and foremost. We are connected um, just in our vibration. And that's what we need to do in order to combat anti-Black racism is mm -hmm. to see ourselves in one another and first and foremost, to have compassion. I'm wondering, Siobhan, sorry, um, did you have anything else to say about that, Salam? Sorry, I just had this my moment. Of... Oh, keep the mic. <laughs> I'm just joking. Um, I just wanted to say, first of all, I just want to, you know, honor you and your experience and your children's experience, because I know, I know what that feels like. I went through that. My son went through that. My son was four years old, didn't want to be black. You know, he didn't say those words, but he said many other things like, yeah. why didn't you call me Zach instead of Jaleel? I wish my hair was... Uh, you know, European straight as a, like Zach's instead of, you know, and so the, the, the experiences of anti-black racism um, are, are common. This is, this is like the thing that this is, this is what we experience, um, you know, our whole lives. So I think, you know, it, it is essential that we come together to bridge these conversations. However, we can't go back to that Canadian mindset, which is right. Love, just everybody's the melting nice. pot and yeah we're just all we're just all nice nobody sees color we're all just accepting each other it's like that doesn't work that's not that doesn't create systemic change we have to address our history yeah. we have to look at our history and its truth and then we have to create actual systems in place and policies in place that protect our children in the schools and 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 then create policies in place that that change the actual systems that are allowing for this blatant um, yes. form of violence against black bodies. Absolutely agree. As someone who wants to make sure that I am not perpetuating a cycle and maybe doesn't know when I'm saying something that is completely the wrong thing to be saying or sub subconscious bias that I might not even know is there. As someone who wants to make sure that my conversations are different from a white female what would be something that I can do or where could be a starting point to make sure that I'm not taking the steps back, that I'm doing something to progressively move forward? Mm -hmm. So, you know, really, I think often people think, okay, that I have this awareness and this education because I like woke up as a black woman and I was like, 
yep, I got it. It's it's like, no, we spend a lot of time like educating ourselves. Yes, we have the lived experience. That's one aspect. But in terms of um, integrating an anti-oppression, anti-racism lens, one just has to start educating themselves, reading books, you know, by like uh, me and white supremacy, reading books, um, like how to become an anti-racist, Ibram X. Kendi, you know, reading books by Ijamo um, Alu. Um, so you want to talk about race and, and there's so much literature. There's so many tools and resources out there. That's one aspect. So making sure that you're not asking black folks to educate you um, or indigenous folks educate you because that's not their role yes. um, and not to you know have that burden on them. Also, I think the other aspect it is that if you read all of this stuff, but you don't put it to action, then it doesn't really mean anything. It, then it ends up just being collecting like, you know, just information. And in a white supremacist culture, um, there's a there's an addiction to kind of like taking on knowledge, but not not actually implementing the actual physical changes. So I would say that the, the next step from from that learning alongside the learning is also the action steps that can be taken, which is like wherever you are with whatever resources you have from whatever platform you're on using it to instigate change to galvanize your community your family at the dinner table at Christmas at Thanksgiving there is no perfect time to be anti-racist it's like every day you're either being anti-racist or you're being racist uh, you're either upholding systems or you're look you're finding ways to dismantle systems and that is in our relationships with our family with our friends Mm -hmm. with our employers, if you are, or you're self-employed, it's integrating an anti-oppression lens. You know, one of the things that I find is like, I've had to seek out like black therapists or black coaches um, because of the fact that I've had so many traumatic experiences. I'm a life coach. So working uh, traumatic experiences with folks who don't bring an anti-racism lens, who kind of use the spiritual bypassing stuff where they go, oh, you can do anything you want in the world. Oh, you can be, you can do this. You can do that. You can attract this. All you have to do is do X, Y, and Z without realizing that not everybody has access to that perspective and, and not ac access to that, that possibility. So how do we integrate an anti-racism lens into whatever it is that we're doing, whether it be coaching, whether it be a doctor, whether it be a nurse, whether it be, you know, a teacher, an educator, a vice principal, we always have to remember, like, what lens are we bringing? Even for me, me being where I am today, I'm a light-skinned Black woman who is not in a place of, um, you know, who can pay my bills for the first time in my life for the last couple of years. Thank you, God. And for, and the, and I am in a position where I have a responsibility and how I communicate my message to the world to ensure that it comes from an anti-oppression lens. So make sure that I'm not leaving out certain groups to make sure that I'm not selling a dream and telling people that everybody can do X, Y, and Z without integrating the idea that the reality is we live in a system that is designed to keep certain groups of people uh, whether it be economic, you know, security or whatever it is to move in that direction and certain groups of people and that because either we believe one or two things. We either believe that black and indigenous people are inferior or lazy are not doing working hard enough or we understand that systemic racism is at play. So we always have to integrate that lens. That's a long one. I hope that was <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. That's amazing. Yeah. And again, these are conversations that need to be had more often. And as somebody who's looking for making changes, I, I appreciate hearing that perspective. What do you think of all the things that you're creating in this world and the changes that you're making? What do you think if you were to ask your son that he would be most proud of, of what you're doing? He 
he tells me sometimes, you know, he'll say little things. And I, I think, um, I think he's, he's seen me evolve. Like, I think because I had my son, you know, at a young age at 21, 22, he's watched my, my journey of, you know, healing. And I think we, me and him have a very different relationship than I had with my mother. My mother, of course, was just surviving. So she couldn't, you know, integrate those conversations. But I've always told him, like, you know, I'm not perfect. I am a human being. I'm your mother, but I'm also a human being who has wounds, who has trauma, who is healing. And so I feel like I become more and more of myself. And my gift to him is becoming more and more of myself, more and more healed, more and more in a position where I can share more of who I am. So I think he would say that he's seen me grow. He's seen me become, um, you know, more confident, more, uh, you know, outspoken. He'll say, mommy, like, good job. Like, oh, good for you. Like, do, do that thing. So I think I think he's proud of me. He's not, like, embarrassed of me, which is, right now, I think. I don't know, but I think he, I think he, he is proud of me and he knows that, um, that I think he sees me also as a human being, which is, which is necessary in our identity as mothers. I think that is so true. And I'm smiling because I'm like, that is exactly what I think my children would say about me. They've seen me heal. They've seen me grow. And I tell them, I know that I'm your elder, I'm your mother, but I am still just a person and I've never done this before. That's it. Um, so I think that is really showing up as real, raw, and resilient, and that will have a great impact on our children. So Salam, what would be, you've shared so many amazing words of wisdom, what would be your parting message for our listeners to take away with them? My parting message for, for listeners is, you know, I think oftentimes people, folks think that the work of anti-racism and equity work is to help you know, black and indigenous folks, or that we're, we're moving through this time because we need to help those who are marginalized. But the reality is black and brown people are the global majority. Yes. And we are moving more and more towards a browner and browner um, world globally. And so what I think people need to start to integrate and, and reevaluate and understand that the world is changing, um, that you will be left behind if you don't start to integrate this awareness and that actually, you know, white supremacy steals the humanity of all people and that's including white folks and that there is a, a need for all of us to heal for black and indigenous folks. We're moving through our own personal journey and, and you know, healing from trauma in terms of oppression. But for white folks, there is a really serious healing that needs to also happen in order for you to, to, to really truly reconnect to your humanity because the, the evolution, the liberation, the freedom of black people and indigenous people is the freedom for everybody. Everyone yes. is free when black and indigenous people are free. That's a beautiful send off. We appreciate you so much for coming in here and this conversation, we, we connect with every single person that we've had conversations with. There's something that's a takeaway that's like, I hear myself in you, I see it. And it's, it's bringing that community together. And we so appreciate your words and the inspiring person that you are and how you're showing up in this and the, the difference that you're creating on a much bigger global impact, the ripple effect that's going to have. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Sam. All right. We'll see you next time, guys. Thanks so much for listening. Tune in each week for another candid conversation. And don't forget to like and subscribe. 
You'll find all the ways to connect with us on social media in the show notes. And we look forward to bringing you more amazing conversations with ordinary people leading extraordinary lives. See you next time.